0: Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky, different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week. Keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well. And our annual Christmas shows, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, not taking place as usual in a run of a week or two weeks of live shows like we do every December, but this year we are doing a one-off 24-hour show on December 12th. As always, all the profits will go to charity, so you can go to crowdfund.co.uk slash 9lessons and donate there, and there's rewards and stuff for doing so as well. And you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash 9lessons to get some tickets to come along and see it live. There's going to be a small number of socially distanced tickets available to watch certain Blocks of the 24 Hours live. And that's also where we'll be posting any news and uh, guest lineups and all that sort of stuff already confirmed to appear. Uh, Robin is hosting for the entire 24 Hours, and there'll be Helen Chesky and Beck Hill and Josie Long and Chris Hadfield and Brian Cox and Helen Sharman and Sharon D. Clark and Mark Watson and Tanita Tikram and Sophie Ellis-Bechster and Jim Al-Khalili and Chris Jackson and loads, loads, loads more. So go to cosmicchannels.com slash 9lessons to check that out. And now, here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy.
1: and good afternoon this is uh our normal it's our our, our sunday live um science q a and today it's all about nature uh it is going is we're going to be covering uh bird life pond life uh things that live in little kind of holes uh and p- perhaps even some cryptozoology i don't think we've got any cryptozoological questions yet so i will be coming up with those so i am a big fan of a of a, a, a mythical beast and uh, not a singular so that sounds like i'm a big fan of a single mythical there's lots of mythical beasts that i'm a big fan of, and uh, I mentioned a couple of things before we get started. One is uh, Patreon. If you can support us via Patreon, that makes a huge difference to us because, uh, well, it's now going on for quite a long time. Not touring, uh, I should currently be on tour at the moment, and so a lot of what Trent and I do, uh, and a lot of the people that we work closely with, are uh, we're live performers, and uh, so we're funneling a lot of stuff into making things here instead. And if you're able to support us via Patreon, that is magnificent. Uh, another thing is our 24-hour show, which starts at. Midday on the 12th of December, uh, and then obviously run till midday on the 13th, and we'll probably overrun. I think we've got about 100 and uh, somewhere between 109 and 123 acts announced so far. Uh, some of the new ones that uh, I think were announced this week uh, Rusty Schweikart from Apollo 9, who is absolutely fantastic. If you've never seen uh, Rusty's speech that he did at uh, a festival at Lindisfarne in 1974, go and have a look at it. Rusty is a, is a, a really fascinating Apollo astronaut and also one of those rarities that he's uh, both uh, an a- atheist and left wing Apollo astronaut as well so uh, there's uh, some very interesting things that he's also done with his career uh, we've got Alice Roberts has just been announced Eric Idle's going to be joining us uh, we have a couple of Australian musical legends uh, of, of a slightly different ilk either side Jimmy Barnes and Delta Goodrum uh, Goodrum rather and we have uh, Milton Jones as well that's another announcement we've got uh, the final episode of Genetic Shambles went out this week that was with Professor Steve Jones and we talked to lots of different things about his career and what initially drew him to snails and how that drew him to genetics it always ends up with snails with steve jones it always ends up with uh, snails with steve jones it normally starts with snails with steve jones there's just no way of getting away from it and also if you want to ask questions today then uh, you can either go to the live chat uh, or you can tweet us at cosmic shambles so it's just at cosmic shambles and uh, trent will make sure that i see those live questions um today's guests are david lindo who's better known as the urban birder and uh, he has a new photographic book coming out uh, i think it's the beginning of january but keep an eye on it birds on my mind and we're also joined by dr amy jane beer who is a biologist and nature writer and her next book is the flow which is uh, about rivers and uh, the return to the river and that is also out next year so make notes of both those things for what you want to do with your book tokens and uh, christmas gift money as well uh, so let's start off with helen uh, helen you are currently prepping for uh, the christmas lectures we're not allowed to ask you anything about that because you've signed a non-disclosure agreement You've always been, you know, very kind of enigmatic in that way. What are you going to show us then, which we know you won't be showing for the Christmas lectures?
2: Uh, I, yeah, I won't. There are some strange things in my Christmas lecture, but this isn't one of them. Um, I've brought some spinach. Here it is. Look, there we go. Now <laughs> there is a reason for the bringing this spinach, and it's it's one of those interesting little things. And I. I I had thought about this. It's actually Mark Miodovnik who told me this little thing. But we were talking about spinach and chlorophyll. You can see spinach is very nice and green. And when we think of nature, we think of green things. Now, here's the thing, that nature is actually a lot greener than it lets on. Um, And you see this every time you cook, but no one ever thinks about it. So I have also um, cooked some spinach. (laughs) This is dedication to the cause, right? Um, So what I'm going to do is on the, there's some things here, some leaves, right? So this is cooked spinach. And this is other spinach, and the things so you might be able to see. This the cooked spinach goes. When you start to cook spinach, it goes dark, right? It's really obvious when you turn the other spinach over, and it's lighter on the underside. But the dark, the cooking is going to fall apart now. The dark the cooked spinach is dark on both sides so the point about all of this is that so this the 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 lightly cooked spinach here that's the real color of chlorophyll Um, and we don't see it most of the time it really is that dark because a leaf has to breathe and that means it's got it's full of little air pockets um there's more of them on the underside because that's where the stomata are but those little air pockets scatter light so they bounce it off in other directions and basically what that does is it makes the leaf look whiter than it normally would so it's only when you cook it a little bit that you see the true color of uh, chlorophyll because all the 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 air pockets collapse and so you there's nothing interfering with you seeing the color and of course if you keep cooking it then the chlorophyll breaks down and goes yellow and horrid and no one likes that Uh, it's like boiled cabbage at school dinners and things and anyway so that's just the thing that every next time you look at nature and you think how cool it is this is all very green it's actually even greener than that it's just that you can't see it because understandably the leaves have to breathe so that's my show and tell
1: and you can see uh, Helen's full appearance on Celebrity Master Chef uh, later on in 2021. Uh, that's fantastic. I, it's it's such a D- David. Thank you so much for joining us. And it was so much for joining um, us. This is, was, um, this is a great time. This is a great time for for bird watching, isn't it? In terms of the fact that I went for a walk yesterday, and because, because the bars are so sparse, you just you seem to get a greater sense of everything that you can see through those cracks, and you can see the kind of movement. Would, is that is that true? Is late autumn a good time? Well firstly,
3: well, firstly, uh, Helen and Robin, thank you very much for having you on the show. And it's also great to be with uh, Amy Jane as well. And one other thing to say before I ask the question, and that is I absolutely love cryptozoology. Oh, oh really, no, you've given them an
2: excuse. I you've love given them an excuse. We're never going to hear
3: the <laughs> end of this now. I gave a talk once on a, on a ship, on a ship in uh, Antarctic, on Yeti, and does Yeti exist? It was quite fascinating
1: so when now now right so everything's
3: changed now uh
1: let's because it is I, I, I i'm not sure I'm, how, I'm, how old you are for, for my age that i was in a kind of golden age of cryptozoology with the unexplained magazine and a lot of books coming out where you would have that that great picture there of the ice pick next to the the image of that footprint was that the abominable snowman stroke, stroke yet and it is it seems to me there is a very interesting story in why we believe in those things, that they are rooted to a reality, but perhaps not the reality of, you know, the Kraken and uh, the Kraken and, and, and various other things.
3: Well, I don't know. Well, I don't know, because the thing is, at the end of the day, um, the mountain gorilla was not discovered until 1904. And look how big that is. We can't even find ourselves in cities. You know, you can lose someone for years living on the same street as you. So why can, you know, why can, why can we say, or how can we say there's no Yeti? I, that's my, my feeling. I think that, you know, this creature is quite an intelligent being that knows to keep well away from us. And I really feel that, you know, especially given that everyone seems to have the same kind of sighting all the way around the world, even though they haven't been talking to each other for, for centuries, there must be something going on.
1: Well, one of my favorites, I have to say, is I just read this the other day. I think it was an edition of 14 Times. Different theories of the Loch Ness Monster. One of them was that it is the ghost of a dinosaur that used to live in that area. That, to me, then adds so much. There's so much fun there. And it's, it, you know, it's not, it doesn't even have a material existence. It's a ghost of a dinosaur. Anyway, that's not what we're meant to be talking about. But start sending your questions in about uh, yetis and uh, about Bigfoot now, because we, we know we can deal with this. Um, so what have you got for your show and tell, David? Uh,
3: have I got show and tell? Oh, don't
1: worry. Okay. The brilliant with well, your show and tell was your interest in the Yeti. That's
3: exactly,
1: exactly. Brilliant. That was a brilliant show and tell. One of my favourites. But uh, to
3: answer your question about autumn, autumn is a fantastic time <laughs> for watching birds, by the way. Um, and you're um, right. And you're right. Um, the fact that there's less leaves on the trees means that you can see a lot more. And that's really good. But the other thing is the fact that there's such, it's such a season of flux. So you've got the summer visitors still going. You've got the winter visitors coming so you get birds rubbing shoulders that you would never see normally together. I remember once seeing a field fair uh, on the path of my local patch in West London called Worm and Scrubs, and next to it was a wheat ear. Even though further north, if you go to Scandinavia, they both live side by side, but in the UK, that's something you never normally see. So that was quite an experience. So you get that flux, and plus there's a lot more juvenile birds around as well. So the actual number of birds are numerical uh, number of birds is
1: actually greater as well. Fantastic. Well, we've got a lot of questions coming up on on that area as well. Um, Amy Jane, uh, you're allowed two show and tells uh, now. So, so uh, <laughs> what have, what have you got for us?
4: Well, firstly, uh, well, show and tell is is one of my favourite things. I'm often told off for doing a bit too much showing and telling. Um, I can't. I literally can't walk past a dead thing without wanting to kind of gather it and take it home and preserve it in some way um but the important
2: point is do you ever see their ghosts knocking and looking around Loch Ness
4: I, I I have been to Loch Ness and I didn't see any ghosts or any um more solid corporeal uh, monsters <laughs> but uh, but maybe I was just looking the wrong way um yeah, so I, I, I do gather these things. My freezer is absolutely full of dead wildlife. Um, not so, not so long ago, um, my husband went in there and had a bit of a rummage and sorted it all out. So that at least when he's going in there for peas or sausages or something, he doesn't come out with an edible dormouse or a stoat or a or a well various birds. I think at the moment in there there's a sparrowhawk and a house martin and a blackbird um, and a whole nest full of of baby blue tits. Um, Can I just check, by the way, do you have a separate freezer for your food? Or, no. And again, I'm presuming none of this harsh. is used
1: for food. Right, OK, <laughs> oh, so God. every now and again, you might pick up perhaps some broad beans and go, that's where that shrew went.
4: Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Especially the small things that do tend to sift down to the towards the bottom. Um, so, yeah, I had a little rummage in there earlier to just remind myself what was in there and and in this in this reorganisation that. that that roy's had um he's very helpfully labeled things so there was a margarine tub that said albatross on it and it had a house martin in it so he, <laughs> he's he's really helping <laughs> that process and actually robin you're like this there was a tub that says brian on it um <laughs> and that's got a tree sparrow in it
1: <laughs> i suppose the tub saying is very disappointing
2: yeah yeah indeed <laughs> So, have you um, got one out for us, or um, are you, is it well, you your um, own show and tell? We found this woman who has I, a fridge full of dead dormice. <laughs> I haven't
4: brought you out because of the thawing issue. I haven't given, I'm not going to show you one of the frozen things, but um, I will show you this beauty, which is one of the um, things that made it uh, quite a few of the things in the freezer are waiting to be properly um, prepared by a taxidermist. Um, but this beautiful bird is a dipper that I found um, in Garsdale in the Yorkshire Dales. Um, Two or three years ago um and it must have died you know a matter of hours before i came along um absolutely gorgeous gorgeous bird one of a bit of a kind of special bird for me i think dippers were the first one of the first birds that i absolutely lost my heart to um on a holiday when i was about probably 10 we used to go quite a lot to north devon and um i remember going to Watersmeet, which is like a national trust beauty spot near linton and um and seeing these birds and just being absolutely enchanted because they, they they they're very much associated with the rivers um they perch on the rock as this one is doing, and they jump off the rock every now and again and into the river and they they dive down um to the bottom of the riverbed and they walk along the riverbed um you can probably see it's got quite big feet, um big strong feet with hooked claws um And they grip onto the stones on the riverbed and and walk along. And they put their wings in this sort of position um, so that they act as hydrofoils, pushing the the, the flow of the river actually pushes the bird down. So counteracting its natural buoyancy and helps it stay down there. And they're looking for um, insect larvae. So the larvae of things like mayflies and stoneflies and caddisflies, which all live in the water. Um, And that's what these beautiful birds feed on. the thing you notice most when you pick one up, I, I, I was astounded that it is actually noticeable. Um, most birds, when you pick them up, the thing you notice is how little they weigh. Um, but with a dipper, that you can actually feel they are slightly heavier than you would expect them to be if this was, say, a blackbird or something. Um, and that's because they have much more dense bones. Most, bones. most birds have bones that are hollow and incredibly light to help them fly. Um, because Because dippers need a bit more heft to them um, they are slightly heavier they have much denser bones than, than ordinary birds um, which obviously makes a challenge for them when they fly although they fly pretty well they fly really, really fast um, a bit like bumblebees their wings just were bumblebees or puffins these sort of dumpy little birds that just seem to um, not be quite as aerodynamic as as others um, but yeah a beautiful bird to see known as a dipper because of the way they plunge into the river but also they do this bobbing when they're perched on the rock like this they'll um they're constantly bobbing and bowing curtsying um which makes them very easy to spot um and just gives them this enormous charisma um
2: and amy if someone is out in do you find these all over britain like if someone is out for a walk this afternoon what where might they have to be to be lucky enough to spot one Um, of those if you're by if you're by a
4: nice river or, or a lake, so you might see them by, by a lake in somewhere like the Lake District. Um, it needs to be a good river. They are a sign of of a good habitat because of their need for huge amounts of uh, invertebrate food. So the water needs to be cle- clean enough to support good populations of, of invertebrates and, and, and small fish. They will take small fish as well. So they are very much a sign of, of a good, clean, um, productive habitat. Um,
2: but they're so, all over the UK? Yes, everywhere. Yeah. yes.
1: Lovely. brilliant thank you for that that's uh i wish i was at dad my dad's a huge house, my dad. amount of, of, of taxidermy that's been collected over years from all manner of places mm. including a particularly appalling gliss gliss that's got some kind of mange post-death <laughs> mange it's really too. oh my god that's <laughs> disturbing um let's start off with uh, a question from john preston i'll start with you david on this here john would like to know our summer visitors come here to breed and then go back south to uh, a second summer does any species breed again do southern temperate species migrate north, or is this a one-hemisphere story?
3: Okay, well, I'll answer the second half first. Second half uh, first. Um, yes, um, southern hemisphere birds do actually sometimes go north when they migrate. So some birds, for example, um, like the rainbow beet in Australia, they head north into Asia um, or Southeast Asia um, for the winter. Yeah, I'll get mixed up with the uh, the actual uh, seasons, but up in this end of the world, which I'm very familiar with, yes, we have many birds that migrate south. Um, in terms of breeding, well, uh, my good friend and uh, hardcore ornithologist, Per Olström from uh, Sweden, um, has been studying migration and uh, the possibility of speciation when birds migrate south and due to climate change and other factors, some of them may actually stay on instead of moving north again. And one such species is our familiar um, sparrow, swallow, barn swallow, because basically what's happening with them, some of them are actually heading down to South Africa and and actually staying and nesting. So that kind of, I suppose, would be nesting in the summer. But one species that is quite interesting that actually migrates from Africa to Europe in the summer is the quail. And it's been found that quails on their migration stop off in North Africa, breed, and then from there, head into Europe and, and Britain and breed again. So that's quite an interesting phenomenon too. But in the main, on the main, shall I say, or in, the, in the whole sort of scheme of things, it's not something that happens very often amongst species. So they're the exceptions that I can think of. Can I ask just about how growing up in the
1: village that i lived in there were always house martins over the summer and they would always you know in the eaves etc you'd see a lot of them and and certainly uh, i still go back to that village and i don't see that now so is there any you know the change in population a change
3: in in movement the house barra sorry the house martin even my mind's not going well today it's going well today on sunday um, the house martin itself is a it's a very sad case because it's declined phenomenally and that's down Predominantly down to the fact that there's a lack of insects in the UK. And also, we're too homogenized. There's not enough mud anywhere. And plus, we've got buildings now that haven't got those eaves that they used to nest in. For example, I I grew up in Wembley, and on my street, I used to have nests of uh, house martins. Um, They disappeared years ago. The London Wildlife Trust. Did a survey I think about six years ago in greater London to try and establish how many pairs of house martin were nesting anyone want to guess as to the number of pairs
2: it's going to be sad I don't want to guess (laughs) because it's going to be a sad number isn't it
3: well basically um I found in Spain I found a building in an average town which had two sides festooned with house martin nests and there were more house martin nests on those two sides of the building than the whole of London. So basically they found around about 200 pairs in London, 200 nests wow. in London.
2: And so is it that just shows, getting worse? I mean, is there any sign of that turning around or is it just all downhill for the house martin?
3: Well, the thing is, I think there's, you know, some areas where, I mean, people are pointing out house, house martin nests or, you know, the, um, the, the pre-made ones. But I think... <laughs> It's hard to say because I don't actually know the full figures at this point, but I know that when I last sort of checked into it, they were declining phenomenally. I mean, I don't see them that often in London, for example, apart from being on migration. Um, elsewhere, for example, I'm now in Spain. I mean, there's Southwest Spain and they nest practically. I mean, they're here practically all year round. I mean, during the winter, there's, there's very few, but they're still, I mean, I found, I found them nesting two years ago in December. Um, but there's thousands of them. And even here, the population's diminished slightly. I mean, hardly noticeably, but you can see it's diminished. And that's because people have been smashing their nests off their buildings because they hate the droppings. And it's easily solved by putting out a, a wooden shelf to catch the droppings, but they don't really think of that sort of stuff around here. But in the UK, it's, you know, it's, it's a sad story, because I think it's a problem with many insect uh, insectivorous birds, like swifts as well. I mean, the lack of insects is 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 fairly obvious
1: yeah that is very sad memory i have uh this uh amy jane a uh, question for you now uh, this is someone who knows you go snorkeling in rivers and uh they would like to know uh because they said their ultimate species for filming is the pike what is your favorite species of freshwater fish
4: So snorkeling in rivers is something I I started doing just just this year. Um, I spent a lot of time by rivers and and on rivers and I swim in them. But the the final barrier, if you like, was was going under the the water, um, putting on a mask and snorkel. And I have to say, it's just transformed um, my view of fish, um, which to to my discredit, I hadn't really engaged with Native British fish. Before I've seen them diving on, you know, Barrier Reef and places like that, and that's always glorious. Um, but I just had this idea that I knew you know, I knew we had fish, and they were probably quite interesting. But they're all sort of dullish colours or silvery colours. A lot of them look rather similar, um, and they're actually quite hard to watch. But um, putting on a mask and snorkel and going, obviously, it needs to be a clear, nice, clear, clean river, um, and going below the surface and meeting fish in their element it's just been absolutely extraordinary and to get to to know them as as animals that do have character and personality and and you know something about them um has been has been wonderful and i think probably my my favorite um would be the minnows um which are can be incredibly common if you're in a decent clean river they like sort of well oxygenated water so the same kinds of river that you would find salmon and trout in Um, and they are the most amazingly charismatic little fish they get to about um about 12 centimeters long a good size one so they're, they're bigger than most people imagine that they might be um but that's big enough to actually sort of See their behaviour, and they're incredibly curious and gregarious. So they kind of flock up to you. If you if you're lying face down in a river with your hands, and you just wiggle your fingers in the water, they'll come and see what these weird sausages are. Um, and they sort of peck at your your hands. You can feel their little blunt noses bumping in. They're very very curious. And when they're that close, you can see, hey um, that they're very very beautiful. Actually, they that they, they their skin or their, Skin and scales is a sort of brown and khaki mottled, beautiful marbled um, patterns they have, um, and um, and they have this lateral line of, of scales that glow a sort of pinky bronze colour. Um, and when I when I went in the river with them in in June, they were all in breeding condition. So the males have a lovely pinky red flush to their bellies, and they had these little white bumps on their head called tubercles which they use for sort of rubbing up against the the females and giving them a bit of a thrill um so yeah for their for their curiosity and their braveness um and their interest in in me and, and it's not fear if you move suddenly they'll they'll flip, flick away but they can do it with such consummate ease they weren't they weren't afraid of me they were they were curious about what i might be and what feeding opportunities i might have brought to them um, but um but just absolutely wonderful, friendly little creatures. Um, And when you're close enough that you can see their gill um, covers opening and closing, and you can see the delicate tissue of the gills inside, it's just an intimate experience, which, you know, you wouldn't get that with a wild bird, for example, or a wild mammal, but so to have a a native British animal approach you so fearlessly and let you get a really good look at it, um, yeah. I'm going to go for minnows.
1: I always like it when mm. the panel start a war very casually. Not like birds. Birds certainly aren't as good as these brilliant fish I've seen. So the war <laughs> is now on, obviously. Uh, this is with the... It reminds me there's a Desmond Morris book, isn't there? Quite an early one, I think, before he became famous for uh, Human Zoo and Naked Ape, all about uh, um, kind of river life, isn't there? I, I remember reading a very long essay about the sexuality of uh, sticklebacks, I think.
4: Oh,
2: sticklebacks, yes. They, they, are, they have a very feisty... Uh, Feisty sex life. Well, it's worth saying I've got a bee in my bonnet about the Thames, um, which is an estuary down here in London, and it's brown. And so people think there's nothing in it. But as you you could snorkel in it but as amy has pointed out you wouldn't see very much but it is full of fish and it really bugs me you know i've been down for fish sampling i've helped out with fish um counting uh, activities and you don't in the spring you can put in not a very large net and you just it comes back full and then the juveniles at that time of year and i remember standing just opposite canary Wharf, this big industrial thing down near greenwich in the middle of london brown river and there were baby flounder there were baby sea bass there's all this stuff and it's right there and and so it really bugs me whenever people say oh it's a brown river it's all dead and it's like no it's brown because it's full of stuff and stuff some of that will be food mm-hmm. and that means there's things living there <laughs> so yeah no going dismissing brown rivers that's what i know
4: or any river really just yeah and and taking the opportunity to to get in amongst it to, to get in amongst it all a river is um when you when you're in a river you can see that it has um a topography to it so if you're close to a riverbed you can see that it has dips and troughs and valleys and sort of the equivalent of forested areas where there's there's weed um, and caves and all these sort of microhabitats within the river that if you're just looking down into it from above um a you you know you, it's difficult to see sometimes past the reflection on the surface of the water um or past the water itself if it, if it is cloudy or silty or full of algae or whatever um, but you can just see that the, this three-dimensional habitat once once you're once you're part of that element um it um it's a complete eye-opener
3: it's funny my experience my first experience with a river was actually when i was a kid um in wembley we had the river brent running through and it was basically a concrete canal with uh, shopping trolleys and, and scooters chucked in there and the water had oily film over it but even despite that you know i was i my, if, I was, if I was going to be asked the same question as you, I would, I would have said stickleback stickle without a doubt because I used to collect them. But also I saw my first kingfisher, my first moorhen, you know, my first common sandpiper on that polluted river. So, you know, it, it shows, as you say, that, you know, even the most uh, innocuous looking place could actually, you know, host life, basically.
1: I think that's a kingfisher when you first see a kingfisher the excitement of that that is still well not even when you any time you see a kingfisher it's just beautiful now this is a question from Terry uh, Terry uh, prefaces this by saying stupid question it's not a stupid question none of the questions we ever get are stupid because they always come from a place of, of curiosity and more often than not questions that some people think oh is this a bit silly lead to many interesting places and what Terry would like to know David is why are there so many seagulls nowhere near the sea
3: well, they always say a stupid question is a question, question that's, that's not, not asked. So that's a great question. Um, well, the bottom line is, unfortunately, lack of food. You know, these gulls, which are affectionately known as seagulls, in, in reality, as we probably all know now, there's only one true seagull in the UK, and it's not the one that nicks your Mr Whippy and your chips. Um, it's a species called the kittiwake, wake, which... Uh, is coastal. However, it does live uh, or breed. I say, in urban Newcastle on the Tyne Bridge. And then in the winter, you don't see them for dust. They're out in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the ocean. as A proper seagull should be, you know, doing its stuff. So basically, um, the gulls that we see um, are now, well, they're coastal gulls, I suppose, herring gulls and lesser black-backed gulls. And they basically um, drifted inland I think initially down the seven, back in the 20s, 30s, in search of food, and they realised that by coming to cities, along with black-headed gulls, that there's a, an, um, an abundant source of food that's there the whole time. And it kind of makes sense, instead of, you know, roughing it and trying to sort of, you know, have a meagre existence on the coast, to come inland and have it much easier. So that essentially is the reason why there are so, or there's fewer gulls on the sea, um, you know, coastal areas as they should be. And the most, most of the populations are actually inland. But that said, the herring gull and the lesser black gull, both species that are familiar to people in, or very familiar to people in Gloucester and Cardiff and places like that, are indeed red listed. Their populations are quite low and the lesser black gull in particular, it's populations basically just in uh, Northwest Europe um, and it's a threatened species. So, yeah, that's the main reason, the fact that there's easy food.
1: I find it, it's a very, that urbanisation idea, which is, because I remember probably when I was 10 years old, maybe a little bit older, when there was a, a, a show from the, the, the Bristol BBC Wildlife Unit, all about foxes in a city. And it was a stunning, oh, my God, have you heard about this? There's, whereas, of course, now... Everyone is quite blasé about the fact that if you walk through most cities and if you go near the bins, you know, after 10, you know, very often when I've been walking back from a gig, I will see uh, a fox, you know, sneak out of a graveyard, get to a bin, see me, pretend it's after nothing and then disappear. You know, it's an interesting change, I I suppose, in my lifetime, in 40 years, it feels like anyway. That's not my lifetime, although I'm 51. I mean, as in I've been I don't think I'm lying about my age, but um, it does seem to be quite a noticeable, quite an observable change.
3: Yeah, it's interesting, it's interesting about, about foxes, you know, do you realise that they are the most uh, widespread species after man on the planet?
2: And they're not, they're, they're, you know, when I, I was pretty sure when I was growing up in South Manchester that they, you know, that you, you only saw foxes at night. I was out for a walk at lunchtime yesterday in uh, Bushy Park, which is out down up the Thames and um fox in broad daylight just wandering Mm. along nosing around and and that's the change I'm curious about it's not that they're there it's that they've suddenly become diet like daytime creatures rather than nighttime ones and does anyone know maybe some of the listeners know if we don't I don't know well I think
3: it's I think it's down to the fact that they can actually they realize they're not being predated um and there's you know good food sources so you kind of don't need to be as secretive as before, because they can get away with it. I think it's one of those things that has gradually been learnt through generations that you can come out and forage during the day because you're not going to have any drama. I mean, obviously there's there's dog. I mean, obviously there's there's dogs and there's cats and there are people, but you know, I think they've actually learned because they're quite wily, aren't they? They've learned that they can actually come out and do that, and you notice that in populations of other species around the world. Some birds, for example. You know, very shy. I mean, look. Even let's let's bring it down to urban. Urban birds are much more um, unafraid of humans as they would be in, in the in the in the um, in the countryside. So, a wood pigeon, for example, you couldn't get within half a mile of one in the countryside. Yet, yeah, in Trafalgar Square, you're tripping over them, and that's because they understand that there's less chance of predation, and you know the fact they can actually get away with things. So, I think they actually understand that and and develop their behaviour uh, accordingly
1: um amy jane this is now uh an, an animal which is is less populous now so nigel has a question about squirrels and he would like to know said i've often heard that the massive decline in red squirrels was a result of the introduction of gray squirrels if true why did the grays thrive when the reds didn't
4: um well he's absolutely right that is that, that is true about um squirrels i've been we've been having a lot of trouble with gray squirrels here recently they've done um Done very well this year. I think this this um, abundance of this spring and summer has meant they've had fantastic breeding success this year. There are more of them than ever, and they're driving my dog absolutely insane by raiding the bird feeder outside the kitchen window where she can watch them. So yes, we've been cursing the squirrels. So they they were introduced to um Britain in the late 19th century. Um so about 140 odd years ago they've had, um, and they've spread from several points of reintroduction. And apart from some areas of Scotland and famously um places like um the Isle of Wight and Brown Brownsea Island, a few a few small areas um have managed to keep them out. Um, they're they're pretty much everywhere. And as they spread, um sure enough the red squirrels have disappeared. Um, and initially it was thought that this was purely um, a result of competition that the gray squirrels were just out competing the red squirrels mainly for food um, gray squirrels quite a lot bigger and heftier than a red squirrel <clears throat> um, people considered at one point that it might be that there was an uh, uh, there was some aggression there that the gray squirrels were actively fighting off the red squirrels in some way um, that doesn't seem to be the case um, but they are out competing them for food so they eat much um, the same sorts of things. Um, importantly, with grey squirrels, they're able to eat um, a slightly wider range of foods, and they can eat things like acorns and other nuts. They can eat them when they're not ripe, um, whereas the, gray, the red squirrels tend to wait for them to ripen. Um, whereas the grey squirrels are much more tolerant of all those bitter-tasting um, um, com- um, chemicals in, in nuts and seeds that the plant is producing to try and stop you, um, stop animals eating the um, picking the nuts before they're ripe um but the grey squirrels that that doesn't bother them, them at all um and so they'll eat acorns and hazelnuts that sort of thing um, much earlier than the red squirrels will um and and often raid the red squirrels um caches them a bit better at doing that um so there's this this competitive relationship and they tend to win out over the reds um but even so the rate at which they were displacing red squirrels was much, much higher than you would expect if that was the only problem. Um, And what we now know is um, that the red squirrels carry this awful virus, um, which is known as squirrel pox. It's a pox virus, so related to um, chicken pox. Um, For red squirrels, it's, it's fatal and fatal in the most awful way. They come out covered in lesions, their eyes and their ears um, and their mouth, which means they can't feed properly and they very rapidly lose condition, become very weak, very vulnerable um, and die. Even if the disease doesn't kill them, then they're likely to um, be predated. Um, so the red squirrels die out incredibly quickly within within a few years of grey squirrels arriving in an area, the red squirrels tend to be gone. And so this grey tide swept through the British Isles. Um, and um, it's not just a problem for, for the red squirrels. You know, gray squirrels do damage to our trees. Um, they they like to strip off the bark to get to the soft, sappy wood underneath um, and eat that. Um, and if they do that around the, the complete um, circumference of a tree, um, then they've taken away all the, the trees plumbing. Effectively, that sappy um, layer um, is where the trees... Um, sap needs to rise from from root to branch to leaf tip um um and so a tree can die or a branch can die so they quite often do it around a branch and that branch will will wither and die and, and snap off so they're a problem in, in 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 many ways um and that's not to say i've got anything personal against re- gray squirrels you know they're they're charming animals but um they're charming in in north america which is where they came from. They were brought here as a as a novelty, um, and um, they certainly proved to have an impact. Um, it's not all completely bad news. There are um, there are places where red squirrels are recovering um, some territory, and that's generally with our help. So they can fare better than grey squirrels in areas where it's mostly coniferous forest. Um, they because they're smaller and lighter, they can get out along um branch tips towards the end so in trees that bear nuts and fruit and cones at the tips of thin branches red squirrels are a little bit more nimble and able to get out there and, and maybe collect those kinds of food whereas a red squirrel is a big fat red squirrel coming along a branch the branch is likely to bend and, and, and knock it off before it can get there so in some some kinds of habitat red squirrels can keep that up hand but of course if there is even one gray squirrel there that has parapox and is spreading it around um then the gray gosh, I don't think I said the gray squirrels don't die from this this pox virus but the, the reds do um so how many um,
2: colors of squirrel are that so I, I I lived in Toronto for a while and it was winter these, and it was very jet black squirrels and it was a very um mild it's same and mild and they just got fat and mm. there were these really rotund Black squirrels waddling around, um and I've never really looked up whether there's other colours of squirrel. I think they're a variation of the grey squirrel, but yes, um, are there many? So they are quite
4: variable. Yeah, within species they are quite variable. So there are in parts of England now there are populations of black red squirrels and of black and red squirrels, and it's just a, a colour morph. Um, but they do seem to be um true to what what you would have seen. The black ones do seem to be bigger and more aggressive. So it's possible that we'll start to see more i think it's cambridge such st- somewhere there's a population of, of black gray squirrels um which and they seem to be doing better against the the old-fashioned gray squirrels so we may be even getting you know a, another wave of uh, even more uh, even feistier creatures
1: People do get very emotional, don't they? They do they start, start as, as, as if there's a, a kind of a conscious intention. If nature doesn't behave how they wish it to, they go, the lovely, lovely red squirrels. And then the, the grey squirrels as if they these kind of, you know, Machiavellian plotting creatures as opposed to merely another living species doing what it does. Um, now, we've got a question for you, uh, David, which is uh, I, I I've never heard. This is do scarecrows actually work? <laughs>
3: that's a really interesting question Um, I'm not sure I don't think they do because I think initially um, when you put out a a figure that looks like a human and hang CDs off it um, it may kind of startle birds at first but then they get used to it and I've I've been past many fields with some kind of effigy that's supposed to scare off uh, birds and they're just all hanging around it so I'm going to stick my neck out and say not really
1: it, it, they're, they're fun because i forget where it is which northern town has that wonderful scarecrow festival uh i think it might be like somewhere up towards lancaster and there's a, a great book of all of you know that one day of the year where it might even be the whole week where the streets are just filled but i think yes they are uh they're ornamental rather than <laughs> uh, the, um, now this one is uh, uh for all of you which is what have you ever seen in a field that has made you double take so the most, I'll start with you, David. That that moment where you're perhaps just walking <coughs> through the countryside or the town or wherever it might be and you see a living thing and you just go, now that was, was unexpected. unexpected.
3: Can I give you a, a foreign example or do you want a British one?
1: No, you can do it wherever. It's, it's your double take.
3: Okay, well, basically I went, I was in Yucatan and I was in a place called Coba and there's this lake that's fringed with reeds and... I looked. At, this was back in 2005. I looked at my bird book, which was pretty, you know, wasn't a very up-to-date one, and it said that there was this bird called a spotted rail that lived in this um, particular area, and it was the best place in Central America to see it. However, that hadn't been seen since the 1980s. So I thought to myself, well, there's no, well, you never know, but probably no chance. So I left my camera, not that it was a good one, but I left it in a hotel and I decided to go for a walk around the the reeds and I noticed uh, this bird called an hinga which is like a cormorant but it's kind of sharp at both ends it's got a really sharp beak and it spears fish so I was watching that hinga I sat down by the reeds to watch it so my head was just above the reeds and as I was watching I saw something rustle in the actual reed itself and out popped this warbler and I thought that's nice so I was looking at the warbler as I was watching the warbler I heard another rustle And I looked down and literally five inches from me, literally, was a spotted rail. And I couldn't believe it. It just walked around, didn't care about me, just fared walked around. I watched it for 15 minutes thinking, why didn't I have my camera? No one's going to believe me. And then it sidled off into the reeds, never to be seen again. So that was a complete and utter shock for me.
1: So that's the second worst. The first time, obviously, was when you were uh, in the Himalayas and that Yeti walked past and your battery had just <laughs> run out. So, you know, there's all of those missed, missed photographic opportunities. What about for you, Amy-Jane? What's your uh, uh, biggest, biggest kind of, of double take?
4: I, I do double takes all the time um, because I I think um, we have, when we're looking for something, we have the, the human brain's designed to sort of recognise patterns, isn't it? So when you're looking for a particular thing... Um, you're sort of tuned into searching for that, that pattern, that search image. Um, But we're so easily fooled. So I quite often see things, um, you know, at at first glance, I think it's one thing. And then I I look again and it's it's nothing of the kind Um, that that um, it's called pareidolia is that where that that effect where you, you you know, our our brains expect to see patterns. So we see faces in in wood grain and and the like. Um, And I've seen, um, I, I, I see, I see faces and animals and birds all the time. And it's just, it's, it's not even something animate. Um, a couple of weeks ago, my son and I um, were walking around. we were doing the Cleveland way. We're walking a coastal section of it before this recent lockdown and um, walking along a beach. And uh, it was very slippery uh, over lots of rocks covered in seaweed. So we were picking our way quite carefully along the beach. Um, and I was brought up short by this, um, this, blood curdling hissing sound this real kind of noise um and literally two steps in front of me if i'd taken another two steps this this rock turned round and opened a mouth and showed me lots of very big teeth and it was a seal um and you know if it hadn't moved i wouldn't have spotted it it was just another mottled weedy rock in amongst all the others um and in a highly professional naturalist way, I shrieked, and jumped back about six or seven paces, and um, and my son, who's nine, was just. My mum is just so embarrassing. Um, so, and then once we started looking, there were seals absolutely everywhere on this beach. Um, so, um, yeah, that's more a case of of not paying attention and just how good wildlife is at just blending into the the background, and if we're not not looking properly what what we can miss is quite incredible
2: um mine's also a non-uk one so uh the context for this is that six months before this and this happened about 10 years ago now um i had been reading a paper about bubbles which stated in a very confident armchair scientist kind of way bubbles in the sea are generated by breaking waves methane seeps and the belchings of fish and I i read this and i was like what what an idiot like fish don't belch you know just imagining this leather armchair and it's very grandiose the whole paper had that tone you know idiot so six months later I was diving in Curaçao. I was working there um helping a friend with um a sea sea scuba diving sort of uh, sea research project and we were um hanging around in the mid water we must have been doing a stop for uh, to adjust our air, the nitrogen in our body and um she started making faces at me and when you're diving there's this kind of language as a sign language with your hands but she was doing things that weren't any fish i knew and eventually i turned around and just hovering just behind me there was a tarpon, which which was four feet long like a meter and a, one meter 30 long f- wafting about belching out of its gills <laughs> and so first of all there was a large fish right behind my head and i that was probably the largest thing apart from a shark that I'd swum with. Um, But then it was very clearly belching. And it turns out that fish do belch, um, some of them, the ones that have a swim bladder, an air bladder, um, if they come up or down very quickly, they they use it to adjust their buoyancy. So this one had obviously come up from depth, Um, had stopped around where we are and was just belching out the excess air so it didn't float to the surface. Um, So, yes. uh, And apparently, and three days later, she made the same noises and I didn't turn around quickly enough. And I apparently had just missed a tuna that was two metres long. So they're always behind my head. I have no idea. She was having a great time.
1: Oh but, well, that's yeah. good. It's nice that you know we've expanded. know you de- you. De- yeah, we've expanded from you dealing with whale poo now to various different forms of undersea flatulence that's as good. well. In this, uh, <laughs> now uh, this is uh, for you, David. This is something that a- Andy, who was who was listening to the the conversation I did with Steve Jones the other day, I mentioned. You might know this, Richard Feynman, uh, the physicist, when he talked about how his father educated him, and one of the things was they were walking through the Catskills one day, and uh, his father pointed to a bird, and in the example Richard Feynman said it was a brown-throated thrush. And then he started to just say, but in France, they call it this. And in Japan, they call it this. And he goes through all of these different names for the brown-throated thrush. And they he looked at Richard Farmer he said, and at the end of that, all you know is what different people in the world call the same bird. Now let's look at the bird. And Andy was interested to know about that sense of being a bird watcher, someone who is, is almost, I suppose, ticking off that I've seen that one, I've seen that one. And then being someone who is a bird, I suppose, an observer that difference between it's not just about seeing it's about thinking why and i suppose that is true of many different kind of hobbies there is that divide between the ticking off and the the actual the obsession about what makes that thing what it is do you see a line there for
3: For me, me birding is spiritual it's not even about ticking even though obviously it's nice to know what you've seen or what have you but i like for me, it's the spiritual thing which grounds me, um, which makes me feel good. Birding actually makes me feel good. It's actually more than seeing the birds. It's the fact that I'm out there doing it. So, yeah, I, 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 there are people out there who are very keen on keeping lists and who rush from one end of the country to the other to tick off a new bird on their list. I was one of them once, but as I once said in one of my books, I said, you know, it got to the point when it felt like a series of really bad one-night stands because you get excited about seeing the bird and then when you actually get to the point where you can see it and it turns up if you're lucky you kind of think was that it and you feel cold and empty as you leave and that's when I turned my turning point was then when I realized that actually this is it's more than just about ticking off birds it's actually about enjoying them as they as, as creatures and enjoying how they make you feel so i mean going back to that example i mean yeah that happens all the time there's many species um that are found not that i know what a brown throaty thrush is by the way because i've never heard of it but anyway um, there's a
1: possibility richard Feynman made it up because he also <laughs> said his dad clearly made up nearly all the names that he said well, he was just that- making noises
3: yeah, that's probably it then. But I mean, it doesn't matter what you call it, you know, because when I was a kid, you know, I had no one to show me anything. I didn't have a mentor. And I was born of an innate interest in, in wildlife. It started off actually with invertebrates and moved on to birds. And, you know, my parents didn't know anything. Uh, they were quite surprised that their son was interested in birds. Um, So I taught myself, and at first I called birds as I saw them. So sparrows were baby birds, starlings, mummy birds, blackbirds, daddy birds, crows were uncle birds. I had no auntie birds for some weird reason. And now I'm finding in older age, especially now that I'm sort of travelling a little bit more, I'm seeing birds and I'm thinking, actually, I don't know, I'm not sure what it is. I just called it, well, I think it's a yellow protein thrush or whatever. I just call it as I see it, because it doesn't really matter what it's called. It's all about what it brings to you. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there is that kind of distinction. But I think a lot of people who observe nature, and I'm sure um, everyone will agree on this, basically, I, it's, what, it, what, it's, it's what it makes you feel like. It, it's how it leaves you, you know, and that's something that you can never, um, you know, you can never replicate. It's, it's something that's amazing that happens to you when you go outside your front door, no matter where you are, in the middle of a city, in the middle of a jungle, doesn't matter where you are. When you connect with nature, there's nothing more beautiful than
1: that. See, that's an interesting thing, I think, and I'll ask all you about this, which is I think in a lot of areas of science, there is a wariness of, talking about your transcendent moments, talking about those. I was thinking when you were just talking about that, that, there's a beautiful piece by Iris Murdoch where she talks about being in a particularly frustrated mood and particularly kind of, and then she looked up and she sees a Kestrel. And at that point, she kind of could be the Kestrel as well. There is suddenly a loss almost of the boundary of your own body. Everything just becomes this part, this big picture of nature. And I do find that talking to people who, who work within your areas there is less of a wariness or certainly now to confront sometimes the beauty of being lost within your discipline. That those moments when you're not actively being assigned or even when you are actively being assigned, there, there is an allowance to go. And then I became lost in the picture that I was studying. Would you say that that's fair, amy Joan?
4: Def, definitely, and and I, I agree with you. That that's something that seems to, we, we're a lot less shy about admitting that now. Um, certainly for me, in the last um, I guess ten years, probably I've become much more willing to talk about how I feel about uh, about nature and, and wildlife um and to engage with the, uh, the idea of of love as being just as important as as the sort of empirical side of science um and, and and even things like magic you know the concept of magic i i'm now perfectly comfortable with that um and it's just magic for me now is magic and nature and god are three things that are the same um you know i I, I don't have a, religious beliefs, but I understand that feeling. Um, I just call it something else. Um, um, and for me, that is that is nature, but I, 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 and magic. Magic is wild. Magic is the original magic. Um, and um, and I think we sort of it, it, we've got the idea that it's become something else, and actually, actually, it's not. Um, and just linking to that idea of knowing the names of things. Um, Um, Ursula Le Guin writes about you know naming things being a very powerful act of magic Um, and so while I completely agree that there is so much more to a bird than its name it is important to us as humans to have a name to hang that memory of that bird on Um, even if it is you know baby bird as David said or or daddy bird it doesn't matter it's just something it's a name it's a word that somehow sets that memory in your mind Um, and without a name for something we find it quite difficult to remember it um um, which is why one of the re- one of the reasons it's very important to me that young people learn names for the things they see um, otherwise it all just becomes nature just becomes this sort of blurry green backdrop in which there are no individuals and there's nothing special um, but as soon as you know that 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 bird that you hear every spring um, that that chif, 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 um, has a name and is a bird and then you realize that I didn't hear that last week or all or, or through the winter and it wasn't here because it's a migrant bird and it's just arrived. It just has, it comes, that name comes with a story um, and that's part of the magic of of, of naming things. Um, and, 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 and why not call it magic? You know, if, you, if it feels like magic, then why not call it that? Um, and I think a lot more, a lot, certainly in, in the natural sciences, I think people are engaging with that a lot more and that's that's a really healthy thing.
1: That's a whole new discussion, which we haven't got time for, because we've got four minutes left. Because I think there's very interesting things there. Um, Helen, I'm going to ask you next week about your transcendent moments, because I better quickly rush through some of the. uh, uh, This is just from Damien. I wanted to ask this because Damien, uh, we have a small backyard at our house uh, in Reading, and my son wants to put a bird feeder in the backyard. So, after any uh, advice, really, of what is the best thing to do? So, so in Reading, small backyard. Damien's son wants to put up a bird feeder. What is the best way way of kind of of setting this up, David?
3: Simple bird foods would be seeds, i.e. sunflower seeds, which are very good actually, or niger seeds. Put them all in a, in a feeder, stick them up in your window. If it's a small um, garden you've got, put it in your front, you know, in your back window or something, or put it up in a bird table. Also, don't, think about, don't forget about the birds that feed on the ground, so maybe put a, a ground table down with sultanas and mealworms if you can get them. Remember to take the table up every night, because otherwise you'd be attracting some unwelcome diners. And every day, put out water. It's important to have water, fresh water for birds. And then try that. I mean, it's, I can go on for ages, but that's the, basically the
1: bottom no, bomb. Great ride. starting point. I've got another one as so well, Amy, Jane, Jane, for you. Uh, well, for both of you, really mariana wants to know how does she get uh, her grandkids off their phones and uh, outside what are the ways that uh, obviously for you you're saying that, that and perhaps for both of you is there, there was a natural inclination sometimes you know trying to jemmy
3: people away from those get things them, get them to bring their phones with them
4: I would say the same. Yes, They're, I mean, they they, they can take, take pictures of things. There are quite a few fantastic apps now which will help you identify um, wildlife as you find it. So apps that will identify flowers or leaves um, just by taking a photograph of them. Um, but yes, yeah, so promise them something like a treasure hunt. I mean, that's always tempting, isn't it? Um, and let them pick things up. Let them actually get involved with nature. Don't 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 hold back. Um, don't worry about them getting mucky or dirty. Um, putting things in their pockets. That's all. That's all part of it. Um, so see what they can bring back with them. Children are fantastic at that. Um, they're far more observant than we are, and um, and I think that they're they're lower to the ground. They spot things more quickly. They don't filter the way adults do. Um, so yes, just encourage them. Um, and uh, yeah, none of that. Oh, that's a mucky. You know, don't pick up that that. Not all that belief. It's got mud on it. Don't worry about that. You know, that's that's part of it. Um I think there are so many people that are kind of allergic to this idea of dirt. Um and it's just nature, you know. I think dog poo, is, gone, is it? Um <laughs> oh, <laughs> disease well, reasons. Don't know. Or has that gone away? That problem. I pick up quite well. a lot of poo, generally not dog poo, but other kinds of poo. Um, I pick up quite uh, quite readily. Uh, quite uh, quite readily. Um it's one of the you know, you can pick it up and have a sniff and work out what shat that is a very it's a wonderful book. <laughs> with that title um so yeah you can wash your hands afterwards
1: Hugh Warwick says otters are his favorite he, mm-hmm. he insists he said the it's a kind of smell of jasmine and earl grey tea and just yeah, a little bit of fish but he, he said they're his favorite thank you both so much we did we didn't have time for all the questions that was uh uh but that that, that was great and it was uh, I mentioned that David uh has uh his his book out in January uh the new one which is Birds on My Mind but go and look at some of David's previous books as well Birds on My Mind which is uh predominantly a photographic book isn't it David
3: it is, yeah. Trying to go last to last for ten years or so.
1: Brilliant. So that that's out. Uh, and uh, Amy Jane, when's yours? When's the flow um, out? That's, the flow ne- that's flow is that's actually 2021. pushed back
4: now. It's going to be early twenty twenty two because of all things pandemic related. That's delayed some of the work. But.
1: Ah, oh, well, so, so, so that's, it's nice to have something to look forward to in, in what we see as a, <laughs> a longer future as well. Uh, Helen, good luck with your uh, I know you are working really hard on the, on the Christmas lectures. And are you feeling what is the level of excitement now?
2: Um I'll, I'll be excited and i can when all- do it. It's always there's always a nervousness in the last preparation because you worry once you've once you've got to the point where you're about to start, you've done all the preparation or you haven't. But the worry of not having done enough preparation, that's the worrying bit. So I'll stop worrying when it when it starts. But it's all good fun. And the demo team there are amazing. So that's brilliant.
1: No, I'm so very excited brilliant. by that. No, I'm very excited by that. And the uh, and just to mention, as I mentioned at the beginning, 12th of December, we're starting at midday, a 24-hour show. We've got an incredible lineup of people. We've got quite a few uh, astronauts. Uh, we have many across the, the the disciplines of science, and we have comedians and all of those normal things. 24 hours of that stuff. We've got people from Australia and America and Scandinavia and all over the shop. And uh, and if you go and find out about our show, uh, Nine Lessons of Carols, uh, for it's not isolated people, is it? I can't remember. Exactly. Socially distanced Socially distanced people, distance socially people distance. uh, which is a replacement for all the shows normally we're doing at Hammersmith Apollo and King's Place. And we're using that also to uh, make money for some of the charities that we've chosen this year. So if you're able to help kind of fund the show, uh, we're using that money to uh, spread it amongst, uh, I think we've got three different charities this year. Go and find out about those. As I said, if you can support us for our Patreon, that is fantastic. We've got a new series of An Uncanny Hour, uh, which has started, currently working on one about David Cronenberg's The Brood. But the one we've got at the moment is about Hawkwind in the 90s. 1970s with uh, Stuart Lee Alan Moore uh, and many others thanks for watching and I uh, hope you enjoy the stuff we've got coming out during the week and uh, we may well see you back here on Sunday, bye
0: Thank you very much for listening support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles check out all the other stuff over at cosmic shambles.com, follow us on Twitter at cosmic shambles or cosmic shambles network on Instagram and Facebook Bye for now.
1: This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.